I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today. He's author of The Apocalypse Factory, Plutonium and the Making of the Atomic Age and a Seasoned and Celebrated science chronicler and journalist. Steve Olson, a pleasure to see you today. Thanks so much for being on the program. Thanks. Good to be here. Steve, let me ask you uh, about when you first wrote this book um, and kind of your sense of the public reception to it. Um, I'm interested always in authors, what they learn after the book's been published um, from readers um, and also anything it's going on in the world, like the pandemic or, you know, new developments in nuclear technology that, that have it all changed the way you interpret um, or make your thesis about the book? Well, this book was interesting in that uh, lots of books had been published about the Manhattan Project ever since the end of World War II. Uh, but this was a part of the Manhattan Project that really had not been discussed in a popular book. The production and operations of the Hanford uh, nuclear plant in eastern Washington state. So one interesting reaction I've had since the book was out is that people are curious to have learned about the place. They say, I thought I knew everything about the Manhattan Project, but I knew very little about Hanford and and learned a lot of new things from your book. And give our viewers and listeners an overview of of, uh, what you reported from um, that lesser known site of the Manhattan Project. Right. Hanford is a place in eastern Washington state. So I live in Seattle now, but I grew up on the eastern half of the state, uh, it's it's dry desert country, sort of wheat farming, cattle ranching type of country. And uh, in 1942, it was decided that it would be the perfect place to put a facility to make plutonium, which had been discovered, a, a new element that had been discovered just a, a, a less than a year earlier, actually, uh, because it was realized that plutonium could be used to make atomic bombs. One of the great advantages about uh, uh, the site that was chosen was that it was far enough away from any cities that if uh, the nuclear reactors that are required to make plutonium were to explode, it wouldn't kill too many people. Might have killed a lot of people in the small town where I grew up, but that never did happen. The other thing about it is that it was just the middle of nowhere. That's certainly what I felt as I was growing up. I was desperate to get out of that small town because it seemed to me like the end of the world. And and that was one of the reasons people knew so little about Hanford, because it's such an isolated part of the country, relatively difficult to get to. And the other aspect of it was that it was super top secret throughout the Cold War. And so until the end of the Cold War, really in the 80s and 90s, very little information was known about Hanford. The people in my town, just 15 miles away from the nearest reactor, knew virtually nothing about what went on at Hanford. One of the things that's interesting, uh, when we think of the climate of your book, uh, culturally and politically, is to hear you say, you know, folks just didn't have any idea what was going on next door. I mean, it was it was little known. Um, I, you know, and I wonder in in the whole conception of the Manhattan Project and, and how it operated, if it could even be possible today, uh, just on the, you know, I wonder if that that thought ever occurs to you. Uh, surely there, there are surreptitious and secretive projects that are undertaken by our government, but um, it, it just seems like it would be would have been a challenge to keep the public calm if they knew that was going on in you know the neighboring uh, zip code. 
You know, that's a very interesting question, and I hadn't really thought about it, whether or not it would be possible to do the Manhattan Project today. The Manhattan Project took remarkably little time. They built the first large-scale nuclear reactor at Hanford in 11 months, from ground baking until the Enrico Fermi came to Hanford to start up that, uh, that reactor making plutonium. When you go visit it today, and you still can because it's part of the Manhattan Project National Historical Park, uh, or at least uh, you'll be able to visit it after the pandemic is over. It's just remarkable that this incredible machine using a brand new technology that had never been used before could have been produced so quickly. I mean, it really shows you what engineers and scientists working together under circumstances of a national emergency can get done if they, if they feel it's necessary to do so. And, that, and that's what people thought at the time. They needed to build atomic bombs to beat the Germans to an atomic bomb. And uh, that was why the Manhattan Project and, and Hanford in particular were started. When we think of you know, everything that um, came after the Manhattan Project uh, in terms of how the war ended um, you know, and, and the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and, and, and then this age that we've lived in primarily uh, of nuclear deterrence um, since then, in that there haven't been any known um, large-scale, um, you know, or any nuclear and, and certainly no large-scale chemical weapons deployed, I, did folks who were involved in the project have this, um, this kind of plan that, or, or maybe it wasn't a plan, but it was just kind of a hope that, um, it, this would be deployed once and never again. They did, and it relates to the situation that we're, we find ourselves in today. Because uh, even though people tend to forget about the fact uh, that uh, these nuclear weapons were developed, I mean, they remain capable of destroying human civilization in an afternoon. And people have focused on the, the, the threats posed by climate change, and undoubtedly climate change is gonna be a huge threat but that's over decades, and people forget uh, that that uh, even a small-scale nuclear war could cause incredible devastation, and any larger nuclear war could really end human civilization. And it could be done because of an accident, because of tensions that are building elsewhere in the world. It is the case that the scientists of the Manhattan Project thought that they would produce atomic bombs and that they would therefore demonstrate that war was inconceivable, that the price of war was now going to be too high and no nation would ever consider it. Instead, we still have thousands of nuclear weapons that are aimed at each other. I mean, I live here in Seattle and uh, 20 miles northwest of here is the largest stockpile of nuclear weapons anywhere in the world. The submarine base, the West Coast uh, submarine base, out of which our uh, nuclear weapons on submarines are uh, uh, sale. And, uh, there are more than a thousand nuclear weapons within 20 miles of Seattle, and certainly we would be a major target in any war. None of none of this area would survive uh, if a nuclear war were to start between the United States and Russia. You're mentioning this as Russia is contemplating invasion of Ukraine, intervention in Ukraine, um, and we are we are sort of reminded of these things occasionally, right? When North Korea sets off some tests or when new nuclear development sites are discovered in, in China. Um, but as we discussed with uh, Bipin Narang when I hosted him not so long ago, it, it's largely a, a quiet discussion that takes place, uh, you know, in, in a very calm and serene way and not uh, with any real practical fear of 
civilization being destroyed on an afternoon, as you put it. Um, and so, you know, and, and again, I, I, I wonder what your research for the book and, and the development of the Manhattan Project, if, if at all, it, it prepared us for this, um, this kind of culture of, of knowing this exists, but not living in um, fear of um, the demise of civilization. I, you know, the, the people who were working closest to the plutonium and closest to the, the nukes as we come to know them today, um, you know, they, they must have, have, have had a kind of uh, psychological attachment to this problem um, that we can't even fathom because we're so psychologically detached from any conception that it is a problem. You know, you're right that it is a quiet conversation and it's still carried out in many ways in secrecy so that people tend not to learn much about what's actually happening with our nuclear weapons program, sort of a, a leftovers of the, of the Cold War. And yet it's incredibly expensive. The United States is spending more than a trillion dollars modernizing its nuclear weapons, as are all the other nuclear weapons nations in the world, spending fantastic sums of money that can go to the many other needs that we have right now on weapons that can really never be used. I mean, in some ways, mutually assured destruction was, was a, a, an idea that uh, people said in, <laughs> during the Cold War was ridiculous in that uh, the idea was to keep another nation from ever using nuclear weapons. We're in the same circumstance today, of course. It hasn't changed. We cannot use these weapons, and yet we're spending scarce national resources uh, building better ones. Uh, that could be easier to use. So uh, we really, really things have not changed that much since the end of the Cold War, especially as China starts to in uh, increase the size of its arsenal. And as Russia makes similar investments in advanced and more modern uh, nuclear weapons, just as we're doing. Yeah. And as you say that, Steve, it's, you know, again, it's another example of, of public policy that's so far askew from what we practically could do to lift up the quality of life um, oh, yes. or to improve, you know, geopolitical uh, tensions. Um, and, and so it's, it's kind of like building a bridge to nowhere. I mean, the, the bridge of the Manhattan project, that was a, that was a vital bridge. That was a, a transcontinental intercontinental railroad. Uh, and now the stockpiles, you know, are amassed for some, you know, some dystopian, scenario but i i suppose with this current pandemic and i know you and i both have had a lot of delays and you know are recognized just how much the pandemic has affected um work and and communicating with the public and sharing a message and, uh, about nuclear technology or about history you know i i just i wonder well maybe it's, it's, you know, the stockpiles that are building of nuclear materials in this country and have been in, in recent years are really preparing for something that actually may happen. Um, it, it's just a matter of when. It's a matter of whether it will happen in our lifetimes or whether the effect of climate change or uh, climate disasters will preempt um, any kind of nuclear use, uh, nuclear technology use. I, I, and, and of course, there are nuclear energy sites that are used uh, daily, but I'm talking about for the purposes of war. Um, where do you come out at that now? I mean, does, has the pandemic at all changed your calculus about 
whether or not nuclear weapons could be used in our lifetimes or our children or grandchildren's lifetimes? At the end of the book, I talk about the fact that uh, even if something has a small percentage of occurring, whether it's pandemics or the use of nuclear weapons, if you go long enough, like a century in the case of pandemics, that thing is likely to occur, even if at any given moment it is unlikely to occur. And that's certainly the case with nuclear weapons, that um, whether by mistake or by a miscalculation on the battlefield or some sort of escalation from conventional war into nuclear war, one weapon is used. Uh, these uh, weapons are set up in such a way to deter attack, meaning that they would be used, uh, that more nuclear weapons would be used uh, if any one nuclear weapon were used, whether by mistake or on purpose, and, uh, and, and things can just rapidly escalate. And as soon as they do, uh, enough dis uh, destruction occurs immediately, along with the uh, consequences of all the smoke and ash that would be lofted into the atmosphere and pretty much shut down agriculture for a decade which is why you can talk about the fact that even people not killed immediately by nuclear weapons uh, would, would suffer immensely in the years to come. So, uh, so yes, uh, it, just as the pandemic re reminded us that these things that have a small probability of, of happening can have major consequences, that's exactly the situation with the pandemic. You know, I wrote previously about the eruption of Mount St. Helens here in Washington State in 1980, another event that had very low, very, very low possibility of happening, a massive eruption and massive explosion like occurred. But when it did occur, it had very high consequences for the people that were around the mountain that morning. Same, same thing. And uh, I don't say with any pleasure that the great influenza, the Spanish flu was 1918, COVID-19 really started in 19 and has accelerated in 20, 21, 22. Um, we know the days that will live in infamy um, in, in 1940, uh, in the 1940s. Um, and, you know, and I don't know, but uh, the 2040s are not, that far away. And I mean, you point out that, that, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, uh, as the great Twain said, and uh, we better count on it rhyming. And I don't know what's going to happen in 2045. But uh, I don't think I want to know. <laughs> Well, you know, at the end of World War II, there was a major effort to try to control the spread of nuclear weapons to other countries. It didn't work out at that time. But the the UN Treaty on the Pro Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons is now in effect. It went into effect last year. The goal of that treaty is to uh, get is to uh, gradually cut down the number of nuclear weapons and eventually eliminate them from the earth. There are ways of doing it. There are plans of doing it. In some ways, it's a simpler problem than climate change. You have these 13,000 pieces of metal around the world, which are under the control of nine men, essentially. If um, enough mines can be changed, uh, those 13,000 pieces of metal could be eliminated, and uh, we would no longer have this threat hanging over our head all the time. Well said. I I'm glad you take an, an at least articulate an optimistic vision for what could transpire in these decades to come. Um, but how much of the, the grievance uh, and the appropriate grievance of the atomic bomb dropped on Japan and you know, the, the, the memory of that historically and considering the deaths and the victims of that over many years, um, and also the psychological um, 
if you will, the impact on the, the Manhattan Project participants, the, the veterans of that. And, and I'm wondering if that memorialization, that kind of history has lived on, because once again, I just don't see it in, in those quiet conversations. Even if they're quiet, I don't think they're historically contextualized. And of course, the attitudes of the scientists post uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki is different than the attitude of, of uh, Harry Truman, for instance, President Truman, uh, at least what we know publicly. We don't know what he said privately, um, but um, I, I just, I don't have the sense that we are living with either version of that history anymore. We're just kind of- Well, you know, this is an issue that came up. It's really interesting. It came up during the creation of the Manhattan Project National Historical Park, which was which is only seven or eight years old at this point. It's relatively recent legislation and many aspects of the park have not been put together. So people, for instance, come to from Japan to tour the reactor in which the plutonium was made for the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki. All of our current nuclear weapons have plutonium that was made at Hanford uh, in, inside them. And, and they ask questions. They say, what is the purpose of this national park? Is it to commemorate the brilliant achievement of the Manhattan Project, the speed with which this new technology was developed and then used to, to, to build these bombs? Or is it a way for people to reflect on the fact that these bombs are still there and of the immense devastation that they caused? And that's a problem that currently is sort of in the laps of the National Park Service, which has to figure out how to present these three sites uh, while doing justice to the, the many different viewpoints that, that surround these parks. Uh, another issue that comes up in the context of Hanford is the amount of radiation that was released to towns like mine and the number of people who suffer from health consequences that could very well be related to the radiation that they, that they receive from those places. Those, the, the lives of those people need to be acknowledged in these national parks as well. So it is a, it is a complicated and historically intricate issue that um, is, is going to have to work. It's, it'll take a number of years to work itself out. Just as we have saw the, the speculation at first, but then the kind of logical deduction that uh, COVID-19 may have been the result of, of a lab escape, not necessarily a, a lab manipulation, but I, it leads me to your subject, Steve, because I think of, you mentioned nine men, and that number has grown over the course of recent human history, the number of presidents or prime ministers or defense secretaries who are overseeing the stockpiles of these weapons. But I, I, I wonder if at all you relate to this question of, of uh, who's, who's protecting our high security or highest security labs where um, there are things like COVID that were potentially being studied. And uh, where does that, that uh, leave us with respect to um, not just the nuclear weapons and plutonium, plutonium in, in this country, uh, but around the world, the security of, of the nuclear arsenals. Yes, these facilities are run by human beings and human beings certainly make mistakes. And the consequences for those mistakes can be dire. But, you know, I also think about the history of the Manhattan Project, the fact that uh, that in three years, the scientists and engineers of this country were able to do something that it really just defies belief that they were able to separate uranium and make it into these bombs, develop plutonium and make it into these bombs. They did so with relatively few injuries or accidents during that time. And, and there were no major mishaps, no, no unplanned mishaps over the course of the Manhattan Project. And when you go to a facility like Hanford, where so many things had to go right 
for that facility to work and to produce the materials that went into this, this uh, atomic bomb. I mean, on the flight to deliver the bomb, uh, Nagasaki was actually the secondary target for the bomb. And that flight almost failed three or four or five different ways uh, mm -hmm. after they took off from Tinian Island and were headed toward Nagasaki. Just everything possible went wrong. And yet the, the intelligence and problem solving ability of the people who were on that flight uh, resulted in a successful mission in the same way that the Manhattan Project ultimately succeeded in its endeavor to build these atomic bombs. Yeah. So you can take a message from that that, uh, you know, human beings are capable of some remarkable technical achievements when they put their mind to it and are focused on a goal and, and don't lose sight of that goal. And that's, you know, I, I, I could just hope that that attitude uh, would, would prevail on a lot of other technological projects that will need to undertake in the next few decades. Right. And on the stage of national security, it reminds me of the bin Laden raid, not that the nukes are, you know, that they're analogous at the same level of destruction, but there the, a lot went wrong. But nevertheless, the U.S. completed its mission under President Obama. Um, let me ask you this as we close in the, in the minutes we have left. There was the, the hope that uh, Operation Warp Speed was going to be sort of a contemporary but very public uh, Manhattan Project in the way that um, the vaccines were going to be created and delivered uh, to minimize the, the damage um, of, of COVID um, and, and to, you know, in effect, end the pandemic. Um, that hasn't happened. Um, and uh, some of, at least modern science, uh, doesn't have a single answer. They point to the fact that Americans are, are you know, in, in a country where vaccination rates are, are not very high, um, but there are countries with high vaccination rates and, you know, with Omicron, there continued to be breakthrough infections and a whole lot of infections. It's clear the vaccine helps you from, from um, becoming infected or having a symptomatic uh, uh, case in which you're hospitalized. So it, there, there's no doubt based on the science that there is an advantage to being vaccinated to prevent uh, you from being hospitalized or uh, from, from dying from COVID. However, the way that, that Operation Warp Speed was, was advertised and the way that the, the vaccines were advertised um, suggested more um, of a magic bullet. Um, so I, just as a, a very accomplished science observer, um, you know, who's been impacted by the pandemic, what, what is your sense of, you know, whether we're still waiting for the right medicine um, to arrive? It, it might not be the Pfizer oral pills. It might be, it might be a patch that the scientists are developing where you put it on um, like a nicotine patch and it gives you antibodies and injection that one single or, you know, injection couldn't give you or three. Um, but is, is your sense that we're not beating COVID because people aren't getting vaccinated or boosted or because we just don't have the, the it far enough advanced um, ther um, therapeutics and vaccines yet? You know, I hadn't thought about the uh, the analogy until you asked your question, but I've realized that they are kind of analogous situations. Scientists thought that they had the magic bullet, which was nuclear weapons that were going to end all, all war because nuclear weapons would be too horrific to use. 
Instead, for the past 75 plus years, we've had to learn to live with nuclear weapons. And, and uh, there, so there are some parallels with what's going on with COVID, right? We, uh, we'd hoped that the vaccine would be this magic bullet that would end the pandemic for us forever. Instead, we're learning that we may very well have to live with COVID for the foreseeable future. Now, there is a way to, to get rid of the nuclear threat that we have, and that's to eliminate nuclear weapons. And that's as much a, a, a political issue as it is a scientific or a technical issue. And though the science and technology will be involved in bringing this pandemic to a close, and after, as I always remind my friends and my wife, I mean, all pandemics in history have come to an end, and we're not going to have to live under these circumstances forever, but it is appearing as if COVID is going to be around. Yeah, I mean, even if it was the most impeccably timed vaccine, you know, and everyone got vaccinated three weeks later, everyone got vaccinated again, I mean, it, I'm speculating about that, but that just wouldn't have been feasible um, in, in most scenarios of having it timed in a way that would mitigate the virus. I mean, once the genie was out of the bottle, it was. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm glad sort of you see the relevance of the question um, because it, it, it raises for the American public a, a challenge to science now, you know, because the mRNA, I, I you know, was described as revolutionary. It may well be revolutionary. It is still being developed, these mRNA, mRNA vaccines, and I know that they offer tremendous promise for the future. Uh, as I was mentioning, these scientific solutions always have their social and political and economic dimensions, and this one does as well. We could come up with the best vaccine in the world, yet if for some reason people are unwilling to take the vaccine and offer a, a way for a, a virus to spread, uh, that is still going to happen. So uh, placing all of our faith in science to come up with these answers is probably a bit misguided in the end. It's going to have to be a broader effort than that. Right. And, and just as in the context of the apocalypse factory, we have to we have to close down um, a shop or, or at least uh, incrementally close down shop um, if we want to avert the apocalypse, um, because the, those factories are still churning up a lot of nuclear fissile material every day, as, as you document. Steve Olson, author of The Apocalypse Factory, Plutonium and the Making of the Atomic Age. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Ann Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.